The views in this do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle on 88.1 WKNC HD1 Raleigh. I am Nick Weaver. I'm Marissa Jordan. I'm Will Mayo. And I'm Jeremy Avivi. There's been a lot of activity in Raleigh in the past few weeks, and we are bringing you guys some coverage of a few different events. Matt Schneider will be bringing you a look at the newly reopened Gregg Museum at NC State. And after the break, Marissa will discuss her experiences at SparkCon this weekend. And we'll round it off with some local trivia tidbits and this day in history with a discussion on Cassini's final day in orbit. Stay tuned. All that coming up next. If you haven't heard, NC State reopened the Gregg Museum two weekends ago after being closed for an extended period of time. The museum features more than 34,000 artifacts that are all open for public consumption. The museum holds a variety of art spanning from 9th century Japanese color woodblock prints to antique North Carolina quilts and is the largest collection of outsider art in the state. Some of the categories of the collection include textiles, including garments, ceramics, paintings, photography, sculptures, architectural drawings, archaeological artifacts, ethnographic materials, and modern furniture. The museum was actualized when former NC State Chancellor and Dean sought to enhance NC State's mission by acquiring and exhibiting art that reflects the university's curricula. According to the museum's website, by the late 1970s, the program had evolved into the visual arts program. With the opening of an addition to Tally Student Center in 1992, it became the Visual Arts Center. In 2007, the museum was renamed in honor of John and Nancy Gregg, were two of its most dedicated and beloved supporters. John, a graduate of the College of Textiles, was a member of NC State's Board of Trustees. Nancy was a leader in the Raleigh Arts community and a longtime and a longtime docent at the North Carolina Museum of Art. During their lives, the Gruggs committed themselves fully to the realization of a collecting and exhibiting art and design museum on NC State's campus. I on the Triangle contributor, Matt Schneider, decided to check out the museum to see what all the hype was about and to learn more about its collections. I'm here with Roger Manley, and he has uh, agreed to discuss the Greggs Museum of Art and Design, and um, he is the director. And I would like uh, to introduce Roger to everybody. And Roger, would you like to just sort of take a few uh, brief moments to um, introduce yourself and what your position here is at the museum and how you came about to it and um, that's basically it. Sure, uh, my name is Roger Manley. I'm the director at the Gregg Museum of Art and Design here at NC State and uh, I've been here since about 2010. I was uh, overseas for about nine years before that and then before that I was actually working 
at the Greg uh, in its former incarnation. It used to be called the Gallery of Art and Design back in the 1990s, and I was a guest curator for about three and a half years then. So then I went overseas. When I came back, the former director told me that she was uh, getting ready to uh, retire and and then did retire, and she encouraged me to apply for the job, and I did, and was very, very happy to get it. Um, one of the things, though, that happened pretty pretty early on was I learned uh, that uh, the museum was on the verge of being torn down, and that they were going to... Uh, uh, at, back then, the, the museum was attached to the Tally Student Center, and um, with the Tally Student Center renovation, the museum was going to go somewhere else on campus. So you found out in 2013, four or five years ago, that um, you'd be undertaking a, a larger process than what you initially thought, and um, so you'd had to scout out a new location for the museum? Yeah, actually I found out pretty soon after getting here. And they had already begun uh, hunting for a new place to put the museum. Um, we looked at about 13 different locations on campus, including the old uh, campus TV station, which later became the Visitor Center. The uh, We looked at a couple of parking decks to see if they could be converted into a museum. But uh, very early on, uh, we also got a new chancellor at about the same time that I came here and uh, Chancellor Woodson and his wife came for a visit and they got intrigued by the museum and um, they knew they were soon going to be moving over to the point, the new chancellor's residence on Centennial campus. And uh, they were the ones that really promoted the idea of their former residence becoming the new Gregg Museum. So we began checking into it and found out that the not only was it a great location, it's right here at the entrance to the campus, right in view of the bell tower and everybody that enters the campus passes right by us. But also it turned out to be the cheapest location. So for NC State, anything that is is uh, both efficient and cheap is, is um, always a good thing. I mean, that's really the goal of engineering itself is to do things in the cheapest, most efficient way. Right. So uh, could you tell me a little bit about the fundraising side of the museum business in general and specific to the Greggs Museum? I, I, from what I understand, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, it's somewhat of a public-private partnership. So uh, in other words, you may get um, grants and financing from state and local governments, plus um, additionally, you need to, to uh, fundraise and receive um, financial uh, resources from donors. And uh, were, were you involved? I'm assuming you were involved, but how heavily were you involved in all that kind of stuff to make this happen from a financial perspective? I was very involved in the fundraising, but it really, the, the credit all is due to NC State's uh, arts development team. They were really key in locating not only private individuals, but also uh, public foundations, um, state money, uh, Wake County uh, tourism money, all kinds of things went into. We looked at every, we, we turned over every rock we could find looking for ways to pay for this. Uh, 
we began with a uh, slightly more than $3 million sort of as a seed fund because that, that had been privately raised back in the early 1990s to build the uh, the old Greg over in, in the Tally Student Center. And uh, when that was uh, building was taken away from us, it was uh, considered fair to transfer the money that had been raised to build that building to, to uh, you know, to become the core of the campaign for us. Um, we we were able to get funding from a number of different foundations and, and sources, and um, it just took a, about two and a half years to to really raise the the whole ten million dollars that it ended up costing. Okay, so the figure is ten million dollars. That's what it. T- it's roughly ten million dollars. Yeah, it's a give or take of a few hundred thousand. Well, that's quite a undertaking in uh, two years. Is that? Just a little, just a little over two years. That was uh, in the fundraising part. Uh, one of the um, one of the big impetus uh, behind that was that we uh, couldn't, we weren't allowed to begin construction until all the money was either raised or at least promised. Um, that we were um, really the first project on campus that was treated that way. And that was a wise decision. I think back uh, before 2008, before the the big economic collapse, the university, and like the rest of the country, thought that um, the economy was going to continue to get better and better and better. We discovered in 2008 that it was getting better and better in a kind of a, a false way, and that when the rug was pulled out from under the world financial uh, situation and economies all around the world ran into trouble. Um, the university instituted a much more conservative way of of uh, building things, and they de- they decided that that uh, from then on they weren't going to pay. They weren't going to start building something until they knew how it was going to be paid for. I see. Um, so let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit here, and um, I'd like to ask you a bit about the exhibits that you feature here um, at the museum and and any particular artists that have significance both personally to you and to the community at large? Well, we're starting off um, with three uh, inaugural exhibits. And one of, the, one of my main goals right away was to try to introduce people to the idea that the Greg is uh, hard to categorize that there's all different kinds of we'll be showing all different kinds of art and uh and in all different um you know ways of thinking about art and different artists from all over the world so i wanted to start with three different shows that were were really tried to sh- span that spectrum so right now uh, we've opened with a show of uh, native american art um to, to sort of show that focus, we have a show of abstract paintings by a, a Raleigh native artist, uh, native uh, guy that was born in Raleigh named Herb Jackson, probably the best uh, contemporary painter in the state, best known for sure. And then we have a show of selections from our permanent collection. I just uh, wanted to show a really wide range those are going to start rotating. They all be opened at once, but they'll close one at a time. 
and uh, and as they close, we'll be installing other shows. So every few months, we'll be having a new show here um, in one or or other of the galleries, and we'll continue to to really play the whole spectrum. So, um, yeah, sorry. No, that's good. You'll be able to edit this. So sure. sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, you mentioned engineering, efficiency, design. Are those uh, those three subject areas all intertwined into this? Because you into this museum, into the into the uh, exhibits um, that showcase those three key words because. Uh, I don't know where I'm going with that. <laughs> I'm going to cut that out. Okay. Yeah, no, there's some, there is a point I was trying to make because you said something that caught my, my ear um, in reference to engineering. And since this, mm -hmm. this uh, location is centrally located to a, bun a bunch of uh, like the intersection of design, engineering, et cetera, mm -hmm. is, uh, does that influence your decision in terms of what, what, displays you wish to show to the public and like sort of plant in their mind like this is like this is what we're trying to accomplish here i that's a good that's a good question and um and you'll be able to add the question in front of the answer yeah, yeah. um you know we're very very aware that this is a university museum and this is a museum for north carolina state university and you know just to be frank nc state is a technical uh, engineering powerhouse. It's known as a research institution, and we never want to uh, forget that we're actually a, not just a museum for the for the humanities students, but for the whole campus. And we'll be doing exhibitions that emphasize technology and science, but it has to be where those those things uh, meet up with the world of art. There's a big uh, movement these days. Uh, everybody's heard of STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, design. But there's also a uh, a, a, a new um, a emphasis called STEAM, which includes the the letter A for art, because people are realizing that it's uh, art and in engineering and science are all uh, intertwined, and they've. That's you know been the case since uh, science began back with the Renaissance with people like Leonardo da Vinci was not just an, an artist but he was also an engineer, also a, quite a, an accomplished uh, scientist, and um, uh, it's if you really look back at the history of of art in in way back in time. The earliest art was, in in some ways, a, a form of science because, or a form of technology, because people were trying to do things that would enable them to survive. So, designing a really uh, a really good uh, bow and arrow or a spear, uh, you know, we can look at these objects now and see them as as beautiful objects or things that have a kind of a gracefulness. But that gracefulness comes out of its origins to make it just fast enough to stick into the side of an elephant or something you know so it's not only just artwork it's also uh useful it's a tool and it's efficient and and it can be uh considered technology as well yeah and i i think of you know i think of our goal as a university museum as being sort of different from a lot of big city museums 
or 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 big national museums. When you go to a place like the National Gallery of Art or the Metropolitan in New York or some place like that, you're going in there and you're encountering art that is uh, made by the great masters of all time. You know, you wander in and you see a show of paintings by Rembrandt and sculptures by Michelangelo, you know, uh, artworks by the greatest geniuses that ever lived. But the, when you when you see that kind of work, you're basically having a sort of religious experience. You're looking at it and your you know your jaw drops and your eyes bug out and you but uh, you know you're filled with with the awe you know it's awesome work literally and you're just amazed and and but it doesn't it doesn't make you feel necessarily inspired you don't walk out of a uh, out of a rembrandt uh, exhibit uh thinking oh you know he could paint maybe i could too if anything you just give up you know you you walk out and say gosh that was so great i'll never be like that you walk yeah, sorry. I'll, I'll come back to it. Okay. Uh, you walk out of that and you, you think, you know, I could just never achieve that level of greatness. But I want people that, that visit the Gregg Museum to uh, come out and think, boy, I got a good idea. You know, this is a, I was trying to figure out how to make this particular textile design or I was trying to solve how to design a chair or, you know, I, I wanted to see if there was a new surface I could put on, you know, some kind of uh, material that I'm working on in, in a materials engineering class. Out of a materials engineering class and uh and go go you know home and and uh and you know apply what you've learned to uh what you can what you can do i want you to feel inspired you know to feel energized by the kinds of things not not dismayed or daunted well that's the vibe that i felt walking in here for the first time um especially coming in um through the doors uh i had a preconceived notion that this was going to be just some college thing that is not very impressive. And from the moment I entered in here, I was pretty, I was quite stunned actually to see the level of professionalism, um, and, and beauty. Uh, so I'm hoping now that you'll be able to just sort of take me, you don't have to take me on a long tour or anything. Just, just highlight, um, one or two exhibits and then i i also noticed there's a, a outside area connected to um the, like an atrium or, a, or a, um, a park and and it also showcases some pretty amazing landscape architecture um from from my perspective so would you be able to do something like that sure uh do you want to do that out as we go yeah we could do that as we go and yeah, then see. i before before we go do that just is there any additional um any additional things you want to say about uh about the museum up here i think one thing i'd like to for folks to know is that we're not just uh what you see in the galleries i mean we also function a lot like the library it's a place where if you're 
interested in a particular kind of thing, we have a huge collection. It's uh, over 35,000 objects, which makes us about uh, four times larger than the North Carolina Museum of Art. This has been Marissa Jordan and Matt Schneider for Eye on the Triangle. You are listening to Eye on the Triangle on 88.1 WKNC HD1 Raleigh. I am Nick Weaver, joined by Marissa Jordan, Will Mayo, and Jeremy Avivi. So, Marissa, uh, we were going to talk about SparkCon. You and I visited Friday. You were there on Saturday. And, Will, you were also there this weekend, correct? Yeah, I went uh, Friday and Sunday, actually. Oh, you missed the best day, which was Saturday, which was the day I participated um, in ArtSpark, where uh, basically a bunch of artists come and draw chalk art on the street. And it's just like this cool, huge event full of beautiful and crazy art. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was there, uh, well, both of us were there pretty much completely by coincidence on Friday. We were going to see L1011, and then the concert had listed the time incorrectly on the tickets, and we were there two hours early, so we just putzed around and looked at like the different chalk drawings on the street. It was really interesting. I didn't see quite as many like detailed masterpieces of art as I was expecting, but it was de- definitely cool. I went on Sunday, and I saw all of the finished products, and they had already judged them, and uh, I saw... A number of really phenomenal pieces. Some pieces that didn't even get an honorable mention were just spectacular. So that gives you an idea of the caliber of work that was on the street. Right. Were you there for the judging process at all? I didn't even know there was one. I was not there. I just saw the aftermath. So it was a competition? Yes, actually. I can add on to that. I have done um, Art Spark for like the past five or six years. Um, and we actually won once, one year. I've done it with the same friend. She's a student at Uh, the art and design school here at NC State. And yeah, so basically they have categories like college, uh, high school, middle school, whatever. And then out of that, they pick winners. Which is really neat. That's a good way of segmenting it. Um, We were also there uh, for Friday. There was like a lot of other stuff going on besides just the chalk art. We were there for a fire dancing extravaganza. Circus spark. Yeah, there was a drum circle where they were like glowing in the dark. There were fire shoots spouting off of the top of this amphitheater and uh uh uh, in quotation marks here a record-breaking number of of fire performers parading in city (laughs) plaza at one time the guy kept saying history is being made ladies and gentlemen and i was like i don't know about that but certainly an interesting occasion it's like those really specific sports facts like the most runs in north carolina on a saturday history (laughs) is being made the most amount of fire performers ever in city plaza (laughs) <laughs> it was a really good show though i actually happened to be there i guess i didn't run into you guys but uh there was a lot of different types of uh fire spinning apparatus uh i didn't know that so many varied things existed so things in general you didn't know <laughs> varied things existed no, I I just was unaware of the variety of spy, fire spinning tools that were at humans' disposal. Wait, what kind of <laughs> fire spinning tools were there? One that I really liked, it was basically a lantern that was Velcro to their palms, and it made it look like they were just wielding fireballs from afar. <laughs> that was super cool. That huh, that's cool. neat. Yeah. I remember seeing uh, the different, like, younger fire performers that were coming out with like the huge crowd that they had at the circle we went to and i was just watching this one i think eight-year-old girl wearing like a straw hat wave this torch around dangerously close to her head i was like that's going up in flames i could see it right now but she ended up being fine thankfully wow eight-year-old girl 
Wait, so for the Spartacon, was it just different types of art? Like, it was like dancing, I'm guessing. Yes, like, there's dance, yeah. um, I guess circus. There mm-hmm. was something at King's, like erotic poetry. Erotic um, Okay, well, we missed that. <laughs> thank goodness. I would have signed thank up. Go- no, I would have <laughs> been there. Are you kidding me? In a heartbeat. Um, there's the chalk drawings. There's vendors selling their own creations. Um, all sorts of dance. Uh, we saw, like, um, what was that that we saw, Nick? It was like... Someone teaching a dance class, and I tried to join in, and I ended up embarrassing you. You, you didn't really try to join in. You you said, oh, I'm dancing, I'm dancing, yet you were standing about 10, 15 feet from literally everyone else dancing in the crowd in front of a hot dog store. So uh, you, you made an effort. Uh, but yeah, it was like this outdoor sort of dance circle thing. Uh, they had the main performers up on the stage that were just dancing. There wasn't any word. There wasn't any instruction. Uh, the crowd was just mirroring them. So... That was an interesting thing to watch. And, of course, everything was glowing. I don't think there was anything at the festival that wasn't glowing, honestly. I think they said that um, the theme was, like, psychedelic glowing or something Mm. like that. There was some kind of psychedelic light show right before the Circus Spark performance that I missed. Uh, That sounded pretty awesome. Oh, I did see that driving in, actually. Mm. Speaking of driving, I've never seen downtown Raleigh parking so utterly terrible i mean we were we were there for hopscotch last week and you would assume that that would bring in people from out of state out of city that would just cram the free parking spaces all over the place no streets were empty SparkCon, i couldn't find anywhere to park we parked on the back end of edenton street in what was probably not an actual parking space that i didn't get ticketed for thankfully but i mean we're talking seven eight blocks away from king's our intended destination because there just wasn't anything closer it was bizarre to me it's a pretty amazing festival, and they obviously draw a huge crowd for a reason. There's a lot of art available there. I don't know if you guys heard, there was also an elemental show that included water, uh, air, earth, and... Elemental is not the part I'm confused about. It's what that show would be. Was it, it like it, Avatar, it, The Last Airbender? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> essentially. Uh, so it was like a fire-spinning show, but it also included water, air, and earth. Interesting, interesting. But yeah, uh, it's a shame they had to wash the art off of the streets afterwards. Yeah, it took a lot of effort. Very depressing Snapchats. Indeed, I got a few pictures. Well, anyway, I think that wraps it up for our SparkCon discussion. Um, So I think it's time for local trivia tidbit. Will, start us off today. All right, local trivia tidbit number one. Shelly Island is gone with the wind, for now anyway. Uh, it's an intriguing Outer Banks sandbar that began forming last fall and is connected to the tip of Hatteras Island's Cape Point. Of course, this could change with the help of s- the same forces credited for the connection. Reports suggest that the link is some of Hurricane Irma's handiwork with some help from the Hurricane Jose stirring in the Atlantic. So what I understand is that basically this new large sandbar formed off the coast of North Carolina and it's become like um, a tourist destination and it's brought in money. It says maybe $140.2 million all for like a giant sandbar. Wow. Talk about a boring vacation. (laughs) I mean, maybe an exciting picnic, but oh, kids, (laughs) let's get in the car. Let's drive four hours away. Let's go set up on a sand dune and go home. Sandbars are those things where you can like stand, like you're in water, but you're just standing on sand. Like I don't yeah, know. yeah, that's oh, so they're not a sand dune, Nick. I did not mean to say sand dune. <laughs> I am sorry to all fans of who wrote dune. I don't even know. Well, I suppose since it's connected, it might be on its way to becoming a sand dune. 
uh, potentially. I think it got destroyed by Hurricane Irma, maybe. I'm not sure. All right, no longer potentially. Tragic. Yeah. So hope it could return in the future, though, with, um, I guess, our crazy weather and, you know, global warming and all that. So. It took one hurricane to destroy it, and it'll take another to bring it back. We're all waiting on you, Jose. No, that's terrible. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, on that note. That was a nice little cash bonus for Hatteras Island. Um, what do you say, Nick? Well, uh, I guess that concludes our local trivia tidbit with a terrible joke and a very awkward segue. It's now time for This Day in History. Jeremy, take it away. All right, well, in This Day in History, in 1793, the capital cornerstone is laid. And in 1939, the Soviet Union invades Poland. And in 1996, Oprah launches her influential book club. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, captivates uh, middle-aged moms around the nation for years to come. <laughs> it's my friend's birthday today, so I'll have to inform her that Oprah launched her book club today. Because, you know, that's pretty, pretty important. Deal, deal. Did y'all catch the Emmys at all? Nice segue, but I, no. <laughs> I saw, I saw uh, Charles Gambino win like, a couple awards. Wasn't, or Donald Glover. Wasn't a Subway. Uh, Oprah was there. Oh, It's okay. the first time I've seen her on television since, like, what, 2012? Well, she does have her own network now. Well, yeah, but, like, what's name one show that's on there. I couldn't tell you. I'm not uh, an <laughs> avid watcher. Marissa? I'm not a mom yet. Jeremy? No clue. See? Yeah, yeah. what's the last time you thought about Harpo? We we are uh, kind of a small sample size, and we all go to NC State, <laughs> so I, I don't know if this is statistically accurate. Yeah, I'm pretty sure my isn't it called Own? Like, oh, I thought it was Harpo. Harpo. Harpo is the production company. It. Own is the network. Oprah yeah. Winfrey. Okay. Yeah. Either way, I haven't heard anything about it. I'm sure that like people that actually watch TV <laughs> might have heard about it, but or middle-aged moms. It's <laughs> just yeah, it's just a weird thing to see her come out like after so long of not having seen or heard anything from her on like mainstream television whereas before you saw her every day coming home at like 4:30 from school <laughs> when your mom was watching Oprah on television <laughs> or you were watching Oprah because it's okay to do that I definitely yeah. watched a few Oprah episodes in the fourth grade some interesting interviews better than Dr. Phil at least my mom used to watch Dr. Phil oh god don't even get me started on Dr. Phil what was wrong with Dr. Phil a lot of things we don't have time for this discussion <laughs> <laughs> anyway um so we are going to wrap that up for this day in history, and we're going to talk about another interesting event, which was that the, what was it, a probe? The uh, Cassini, uh, NASA's spacecraft, ended its remarkable journey of exploration on Friday. Um, I, I can't tell if it's a probe or a, a satellite. Um, let me read the, a little bit of the article to get context here. Uh, having expanded almost every bit of the rocket propellant it carried to Saturn, operators are deliberately plunging Cassini into the planet to ensure Saturn's moons will remain pristine for future exploration. In particular, the ice-covered, ocean-bearing moons Enceladus and also Titan, with its intriguing prebiotic chemistry, beginning in 2010, Cassini began a seven-year mission extension in which it completed many moon flybys while observing seasonal changes on Saturn and Titan. So I think what I'm getting from this is that it's a probe or a satellite that was orbiting the moons and the area around them to study different geological formations or, or signs of life on the various locations of Saturn and its moons, uh, which is important. I remember like in elementary school, they talked about like seeing biotic life, like cellular life on, I think, Titan 
And I don't know if anything ever came from that. I don't think that was true. It may have been the conditions were like similar to early Earth. That would make more sense because I don't think we found actual life yet. Yeah, no, I feel like that would have been a bigger deal than just middle school or elementary school me remembering seeing little wiggly forms and dirt on a video (laughs) in science class. But that's pretty exciting, even that there are the prebiotic conditions. Uh, We don't really have any evidence of that anywhere else, and that's with as many planets as there are, uh, there really ought to be something close to Earth somewhere. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about this is that the article says that uh, they deliberately crashed it into Saturn as part of, you know, ending its mission. Uh, Wait, so they... Deliberately, they deliberately crashed the satellite or the probe. Yeah, yeah. So the way they did it was uh, in April of 2017, Cassini was placed on an impact course that uh, unfolded over five months of daring dives, a series of 22 orbits that each passed between the planet and its rings. Called the grand finale, this final phase of the mission has brought unparalleled observation of the planet and its rings from closer than ever before. So essentially what they did is that they just narrowed the orbit until it finally crashed into the planet. So they built it to basically die at some point. Well, they, I think it went out, uh, It first went out on October 15th, 1997. So it's been out there for a really long time gathering mm-hmm. and collecting data. Uh, and now they're just saying, all right, well, it's it's seen what it needs to see. And if we keep it out there longer, it's going to crash okay, into one yeah, of the moons. I look forward to the release of any kind of interesting findings that they found once they got much closer to the planet. That That's data that they haven't been able to get since it's been released 20 years ago. Yeah, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, I don't think we have any surface image data of, of, of Saturn, like any really high definition or clear shots of like the surface of Saturn, do we? I think only the rings, because you've yeah. seen pictures of rings. Like- so with this, they might have actually been able to get that, which would be a really cool thing to like know at this point. Absolutely. Well, I guess it served a dual purpose. They got rid of it, and they uh, got to get really close Wait, so they to got the rid of it, and they got the pictures out of it? Yeah, well, they were yeah. transmitting the whole time, I'd assume, okay. as as long as they could. I'm sure it, you know, stopped transmitting once it was right, so obliterated. They were to get really close to the rings, is what I'm guessing. Yeah, right. I guess mm-hmm. I'm. I was not super familiar with this before, but um, in one of my geology classes, we were actually talking about it because a lot of people are taking this planetary geology class we offer here at State, and my professor actually like works with NASA and stuff like that, so it's pretty cool, you know, to hear his perspective on this kind of thing. <laughs> pretty interesting. Awesome. Is that a class available to any any student, not necessarily geology? A, like, Actually, plug. yes, I believe so. Um, I think it's like just an extracurricular class. Heck yeah. All right. And to finish off, just to mention here, uh, after its four-year prime mission, Cassini's tour was extended twice, meaning that it twice surpassed what they uh, originally intended for it to collect more data. And uh, its key discoveries have included the global ocean with indications of hydrothermal activity within Enceladus, I'm totally saying that wrong, and liquid methane scenes on Titan. Uh, And although the spacecraft may be gone after the finale, its enormous collection of data about Saturn, the giant planet itself, its magnetosphere, and rings and moon, will continue to yield new discoveries for decades. So that's uh, that's a pretty uplifting note there. Go NASA. Yeah. Well, that about does it for this week's show. Thanks for joining us on this fantastic Monday afternoon. As always, if you heard anything you liked, you hated, or anything that made you think, let us know at publicaffairs at wknc.org. And be sure to check out our blog at wknc-eot.tumblr.com. Our intro music today was our classic opener, Connie by L1011. You can catch us here next week with another episode of Eye on the Triangle right here on WKNC. I'd like to thank our contributors and the rest of the staff here at Eye on the Triangle.
Be sure to catch us again next week um, on our Monday 7 to 8 time slot and also this week again uh, from Wednesday from 7 to 8 a.m. in our rerun slot. Fingers crossed anyway that we can get it out in time. Hoping for a successful launch this week. Anyways, for Eye on the Triangle, I'm Nick Weaver. I'm Marissa Jordan. I'm Jeremy Vivi. And I'm Will Mayo. Thanks again for listening in. You know the drill. Stay tuned for your usual programming of amazing indie tunes, and we'll see you all again next time. This is Chris from Metz. You're listening to WK.